Hello and welcome, Peter Gaiman. Peter, tell us everything we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Well, you don't give me much to work with, but uh, in 60 seconds, I think I would say I'm a sinner saved by grace. Uh, praise the Lord for that. I grew up in northern Minnesota, which uh, is in the United States, winter wonderland. Uh, you know, people don't experience cold in winter until they've been to Minnesota. And I had a wonderful Christian family. Uh, I grew up there, got saved early. I attended master's university and seminary. So I went all the way through and I actually got my MDiv at TMS, my THM and my PhD. And in doing that, I just really, you know, felt, felt called to ministry. The Lord just opened the doors to North Carolina, where I actually now serve as professor of Old Testament biblical languages in Cary, North Carolina at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. And then just for fun, I also run a blog and podcast called The Bible Sojourner. Was that 60 seconds? or? I think you've still got 10 seconds left to quickly tell us that you've also written a new book. <laughs> True. And uh, yeah, I just am really thankful Lord opened the door for that. I, I just finished a book called The Baptism Debate and just really, really excited about baptism now and just loved the whole process of working through that and excited to talk a little bit about baptism today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a, an, an important topic as well with so much debate uh, around it. Uh, let, let's start off on the ground floor. What does it mean to be baptized, Peter? All right. Well, it kind of depends on where you're coming from. But as a Baptist, I would define baptism as the culmination of one's public profession of faith. And really, it's it's the symbol of allegiance to Christ. As we profess him as our Lord and Savior, we, we walk forward in public confession. We become immersed in the water, and that act inherently symbolizes the washing away of our sins and our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Excellent. So set the table before us. What are the two mainstream positions when it comes to the baptism debate? Yeah, this is a, a great question because it actually really kind of formulates what what we're actually working with here. And many, many of your listeners here and those who are watching this will understand that, you know, traditionally in the church, there have been those people who who baptize infants and then those weirdos over there that don't baptize infants. So <laughs> so why are those why are why are those the distinctions? And basically it yeah. comes down to the two two ideas of credo baptism and pedo baptism. Credo coming from Latin, credo I believe. So that's often referred to as believers baptism saying that only those who profess faith in Christ should be baptized. And then alternatively, pedo baptists coming from from the idea of child baptism or infant baptism. And those are the people who believe that it's not only believers who should be baptized, everybody believes that, but also their children. So those are the two main camps when, when we ask who should be baptized, that's how they typically line up. Yeah. And what do we see in history? So, so as an example, what's the history of infant baptism, Peter? Well, and this is, again, going to have some differences of opinion. Uh, I... Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Everett Ferguson is just a tremendous church historian, and he's written a lot on this. In fact, his latest book, I think it was published in 2015, if I remember correctly, is about 900 pages. It's it's not light bedtime reading, if that's what you're looking for. He's, <laughs> yeah, well. uh, he's going into the weeds, but but he does such a great job. And, and the way I kind of, I line up with the way he kind of summarizes things and, and the way he would see it developing is, is again, coming from a Baptist perspective, um, we're assuming for the sake of argument right now that credo baptism or believers baptism was the practice of the early church and how infant baptism develops probably takes place in the second century, some, sometime in the mid second century. And part of the reason for that is because you have uh a lot of plagues coming in uh into the world during that time into the roman empire and a lot of believers during that time had errantly held to uh, a belief of baptismal regeneration and we'll talk a little bit more about that later i'm sure but but with regard to this belief saying okay we don't want our kids to die of the plague because children are usually more susceptible to these kinds of things and so we don't want them to die without eternal life and so what we're going to what we're going to do is we're going to baptize them if we see that they're in danger of dying. And and so what probably happens now the information is sparse here. And so we're putting together bits and pieces there's there's 
uh, inscriptions on some of these headstones for graves. There's also some early church writings where you have church fathers saying, if there's danger, then baptize the child. Uh, and so we're putting all these evidences together. Mm -hmm. And so it's likely that infant baptism becomes an issue or becomes uh, a part of much of the church experience at some point during the second century. We have the first you know, clear evidence in the first part of the third century around 205 AD that it's being practiced with with some regularity in the writings of Tertullian. And then as we get to the time of Augustine later on, it it's it's by and large the main practice of the church at that point. And then from from the time of Augustine to the time of the Reformation, it's you know, I was telling somebody the other day, you you would likely not meet anybody who who ever knew somebody who had not been baptized as an infant in in yeah. the Roman Empire of that era. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. So what I didn't hear there was any Bible verses. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the debate, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I, I, I also do not see infant baptism in the Bible, but I, I also <laughs> recognize and want to uh, acknowledge that there are different ways that you can argue for, for yeah. infant baptism. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So so what's been your journey when it comes to this debate? Have you always held the view that you have now, Peter? Well, it, it is interesting. I grew up Baptist and I, I repented of my sin early on and I was baptized at the age of eight. And I, I remember yeah. thinking, okay, I really want to want to be baptized and profess my faith in Christ. And and I never had any doubts about that. It wasn't actually until later that I actually found out that there were solid believers who baptized their babies. And I just remember thinking to myself, that is so weird. How can, I mean, I go to conferences. This was later on when I was in high school and college. And I was thinking, I go to conferences with these guys and I hear them preach. And I just, my heart lights on fire because they're preaching the word and they're going yeah. to town. And yet, why is it that they're baptizing babies? And and I kind of got convicted because I just would dismiss whenever somebody would say, oh, we baptize babies. I used to just think, well, that's that's silly. Why would you ever do that? But then I realized I had no idea why. And so mm -hmm. really, it was just a few years ago, about uh, three, three, three years ago, probably, where I, I just decided, you know what, I need to, I need to know why they're doing this. And so I really started to dive into, you know, the writings of John Calvin, uh, Augustine a little bit. I started to go through Luther, Zwingli, and then even modern day proponents as well. You know, I would look at the R.C. Sproul arguments, the Kevin DeYoung, all these, all these guys who come from this paedo-baptist background who are considered uh large by and large very solid and just trying to piece together their arguments because i realized that even though i'd grown up baptist i'd never really even considered why somebody else might argue for that yeah yeah sure this is is widely considered a, a secondary issue but in what ways do you think that infant baptism is harmful to the church peter yeah you know i think this is this is such a great question I, i'm really glad you asked that david because there are a lot of times we we think okay this isn't a primary issue it's it's secondary so then the logical conclusion is that it doesn't matter but it actually matters so much and and it's well there are a couple doctrines that lead into infant baptism which we'll talk about but then there are a couple doctrines that lead out of infant baptism and one of the doctrines that i would argue makes makes infant baptism dangerous is the idea that those who hold in the reformed churches to infant baptism actually believe in a unregenerate church membership. So what I mean by that is is in reformed infant baptism what you're doing is you believe that that those who are a part of the new covenant community are those who have expressed faith in Christ but they are not the only ones who are part of the new covenant community also their families, their their offspring are also a part. And so they are baptized uh, into the new covenant community. But what that means then is that you have a, a collection, an assembly of the church that is that is embraced as the body of Christ, and you're treating these unregenerate children largely as being full covenant members who are, mm -hmm. who are bought and paid for by Christ. And there are obviously implications then of, okay, well, what about church discipline then? When is that supposed to be affected? And how should we operate that? Because we have, 
these children who have been baptized and brought into the covenant community, we, we think of them as being a full part of the church, and yet they are unsaved still. And so there, that is, in my mind, one of the most dangerous parts of it, because it really it really challenges the whole idea of what is the church. Now, to be fair, Paedo-Baptists will come back at me and say, well, listen, you guys have unregenerate members of your church as well. And that's true, but that's not intentionally. We try to forbid that from happening. We evaluate the confessions of faith and we we make sure that people know what they're doing when they're going through bap- the baptismal process. But that's the danger of the Paedo-Baptist church is they are intentionally adding members to the church through baptism who are not regenerate. And I think that that's, in my mind, one of the one of the biggest dangers. Uh, secondarily, I would, and this isn't really fair to second, say secondarily, but it's also a danger uh, just because I, I would, I'm convinced that it's unbiblical, hence the book, The Baptism Debate. I'm convinced it's yeah. unbiblical. And so when we teach people to embrace something like this, we are acting in disobedience to Christ. Yeah. 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 Thank you for that. Thank you. So what is the relationship between faith and baptism? So this, in my mind, is the million-dollar question, okay? So when you think about the relationship between faith and baptism, this is is where the rubber meets the road. This is, you know, you put all your money in, you know, this is the high stakes right here. Because if faith and baptism are related, then that by necessity, excludes infants from being able to be baptized. And I would argue that this is, with the utmost clarity, something that the New Testament teaches. Whether you have the didactic passages in the epistles, or you have the narratives in Acts, or even the Gospels, the implication is that repentance and faith are key components that are prerequisite to baptism. And so one of the big arguments against infant baptism would be, if that's the case— if faith is a prerequisite to baptism, where somebody expresses their faith and allegiance to Christ, and then they are baptized as the completion or manifestation of that faith, then how could a child be baptized? And traditionally, then, uh, you know, the the obvious the obvious follow up to that is well, if faith is so clearly linked, uh, why why is why is infant baptism even a reality? And so, what what a lot of people will turn around and argue against that kind of argument is they'll say, well, faith uh, is related to baptism in the sense that baptism uh, is a promise that if you exercise faith, then you will be saved. But my pushback on that is that if you just look at the biblical passages and exegete them, nowhere, and I mean nowhere, there's no place to prove this, nowhere can you actually find a passage which teaches a potential faith or a faith that is that is some sort of uh, promise if this happens. No, baptism always is linked with genuine, real, uh, an actual manifestation of faith. And so you do have this correlation, this, this back and forth between faith and baptism in the New Testament, which really, in my mind, disqualifies the whole concept of infant baptism. And since it's such a big deal, you can, you can imagine that you know, Paedo-Baptists try to push back, and one of the primary ways that they push back against this is is by arguing arguing theologically, and they they tend to argue for a connection between baptism and circumcision in the Old Testament, and arguing that right. well, look, circumcision had no relationship to faith, so therefore baptism has no relationship to faith. But of course, that's kind of a presupposition in their argument because I would actually come at that and say, listen, I don't think circumcision and baptism are actually related. And so I think that that's probably in, if, I, if you'll forgive me for alluding to my book, I think that's one of the chapters I was most excited about was to work through the this supposed connection between circumcision and baptism, just showing, listen, the differences are so, so obvious there that you cannot connect uh, baptism and circumcision. They're, they're, the differences are so vast that the yeah. attempt to connect them really falls short. Yeah, no. Please don't apologise for alluding to your book, Peter. I think this is a is an essential purchase for for anybody who's got some, uh, you know, interest in this debate, which he, which would be everybody listening, right? So it's it's very very important. We know from experience that there's no guarantee for an infant that has been baptised that they will go on to become born again. Therefore, for those that hold this position, what is infant baptism actually achieving? 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, a great, a great question. So there's actually some variation here. And so, and this is something that I try to do and I hope, I hope I'm successful in, in working through this is it's very difficult and, and wrong to, to just pigeonhole somebody and say, everybody who holds to infant baptism believes the exact same thing. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, course, yeah. it, it actually, it, it's interesting because in, in exploring this, it, quickly became obvious to me that, wow, there are some major debates even within infant baptism camps themselves. Like for, for example, probably the most common branch of big tent Christianity, Catholicism, you know, they're, they label, uh, they're labeled as Christians, although we would have, you know, significant disagreements with their theology, but they actually believe that baptism does regenerate the child, that there is, that there's salvation that takes place, uh, through the baptismal act. Uh, Lutherans are actually quite similar as well, although they would differentiate themselves from Catholics, but then everybody else says you're not really differentiating yourself. So, uh, you have Catholics and Lutherans, uh, holding to some form of regeneration and salvation through baptism. On the other hand, you have the reformed camp, which is arguing and pushing strongly that salvation is only by grace through faith. Amen. And amen. You know, want to applaud our, our brothers and sisters for, for saying that. Absolutely. But within this reformed camp, then the question is, well, but what does baptism accomplish for infants? And some would actually argue, and I think this is dangerous, but some would actually argue that when you baptize an infant, it inclines God to save them. And that's that's actually a word yeah. that I, I heard used recently in an, in an interview. Yeah. And this individual said that when we baptize our babies, it inclines God to save them. It doesn't obligate him to save them, but in, in following with the promise that God has given, God is more favorable to save this child now. And I think that's dangerous because you go down that road. And to be fair, that I also would think would is a minority position within the reform circles. The the most common view is that the baptizing of infants is actually giving them a tangible sign of the promise that God had, that God will save them by faith if they believe. So when you baptize Mm -hmm. the infant, uh, when they, when you baptize the infant, it's giving that child a promise saying, if you believe in Christ, when you get older, then you will experience the fullness of what this baptism signifies. So you will be saved by God's grace through faith if you believe. But of course, you know, the pushback on that would be what actually did that baptism accomplish then that is not also true for every other infant out there because God gives that same promise to everybody. And so, so I do think, even though that's what they would say, I do think that there is some, some problems with, with taking that viewpoint, because then at the end of the day, baptism doesn't actually do much because that same promise exists for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, so good. So interesting. What would you say to someone that believes that baptism is salvific? Yeah, there's this is very common in in many different camps, and I would just respond with a couple couple I guess biblical evidences that that it's not. So first of all, the the biblical teaching is very clear that salvation is by God's grace through faith. I mean, you have just the the classic passages. You have Ephesians two, you have Titus three, talking about how it's not by our works, uh, that regeneration is accomplished. It's by God's grace. And so those, those passages are crucial to give us an understanding that salvation is only by God's grace, not, not through works. But then even in addition to that, as a foundational reality, there's, there's biblical examples or thought patterns that we can follow to understand that that is not possible. For example, the thief on the cross. I mean, Jesus promises him today, you will be with me in paradise. And then there's nothing about him being baptized. In fact, it's kind of silly to imagine that because he dies out there. He dies on the cross, right. no opportunity for baptism. Uh, but add add to that also all the Old Testament saints, because we do believe that uh, Paul, you know, when he's arguing, especially from the Old Testament, he says Abraham and those after Abraham, uh, even those before Abraham, we would hold uh, Hebrews 11, are exercising faith and saved by faith alone. And no Old Testament saint is baptized. I mean, maybe there's an exception of somebody who fell in a river or something, but but baptism is a New Testament phenomenon with regard to what we read in 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 the New Testament linked with the church. And so looking at some of these evidences, 
I would say, listen, it's either you're going to have to argue that there's multiple ways of salvation, which is always dangerous and inevitably leads to heresy, or you have to say that, okay, the holistic evidence of scripture is that baptism does not actually save you. Uh, and so we, we believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that sinners are saved by God's grace through the exercise of faith. And baptism is a symbol of that, yes, and it points to that, yes, but that has has not been necessary in every case. Uh, and so it yeah. immediately kind of gives through the exceptions pointing to to an understanding beyond that. Yeah, yeah. Peter, I'm sure we've already upset lots of people, so let's keep going. <laughs> How important is the mode of baptism? <laughs> Well, yeah, ask another uh, non-controversial question, why don't you? Uh, <laughs> you know, I think I've come to more of a conclusion in working through my book on baptism that the mode is important than I would have otherwise said, or, or to say it differently, before before I wrote the book, I probably would have said, okay, obviously the mode should be immersion, but it's maybe not that important. But yet, as I studied it, I just... I came to the conclusion that the the mode is linked with the symbol. So I would say it's actually very important that the mode of baptism is practiced through immersion because mm -hmm. when when you actually go through the immersion process, you you see what what Paul is explaining in Romans 6 for example, because he gives the picture there in Romans 6 that we have been immersed, if I can use that term, he uses baptized, but really it, we've been immersed into Christ. We've been immersed into his yeah. death and burial. And then we are also immersed in his resurrection. We are, we are, uh, at, at just as somebody is dipped below the water and, you know, by the way, it doesn't have to be backwards. Nothing, nothing says in the Bible, it has to be backwards. In fact, the early church baptized people forwards, uh, face, face mm -hmm. down. And so that's fine. But the point is, immersing oneself in, in water is symbolic of of the death the 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 death of an individual the union with Christ in that in his death and then being raised out of the water is symbolic of now we are raised with Christ's new life and then as Paul says in Romans 6 then we therefore walk in newness of life and you know one of the one of the things that you know I think people often miss is that it's not really a debate uh, I mean, people people debate about it, but it, it's been solved a long time. Both paedo-baptists and credo-baptists all essentially acknowledge that what Christ uh, or, or Christ's revelation of baptism in the New Testament through his apostles uh, was intended to be understood as immersion. I mean, the lexical yeah. information is overwhelming. Everyone acknowledges that. But even, even some of the prominent paedo-baptists like... Uh, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, they have some amazing quotes that I give in the book where they, they say, yeah, of course, baptism is meant to be done by immersion. And Luther actually says, so we sh should do immersion because it corresponds to the reality of what baptism actually is. But then on the other hand, you have uh, John Calvin who says, yes, it's supposed to be immersion or that's what it was in the days of the New Testament and the early church, but it doesn't matter. And so my pushback is, well, listen, if baptism uh, being done through immersion and being done in just such a fantastic you know, display of what is actually being accomplished, if, if that's the reality, if that's what's going on right now, uh, why should we change that? I mean, the symbol is linked with the picture of what's going on. And so I, yeah, how important is it? I think it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. Really helpful stuff. Peter, what would you say to someone that claims to be a Christian but hasn't yet been baptized? Well, I think that there are legitimate reasons at times. Uh, maybe they don't understand. Maybe there's there's something prohibiting them. Uh, and I I want to be sympathetic to that. But I would say, I would say in in the majority of cases that there's no excuse not to be baptized as a Christian. In fact, in fact. Baptism, if you remember my definition of baptism at the very beginning, baptism is how we confess our, our allegiance and union with Christ. It's it's not an option. So it's it's the completion of that step of obedience. It's it's yes, you exercise your faith. And and Jesus himself said that by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you keep my commandments. And so one of the things I would lovingly uh, uh, ask somebody is 
if if you claim to be a Christian, why is it that you're having a hard time being obedient to Christ? I, I think that that should cause somebody to question, well, why am I not being obedient? And it's possible that you are holding back and that you haven't submitted to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And when is the right time for someone to be baptized? Is in, in how soon, Peter? Well, I I think it should be as soon as possible with one qualification that I do think it's really important to to know what you're doing. And so I think that the early church did this pretty well, I think, is when you study what the what the church fathers typically did on baptism, is that they would they would often catechize an individual meaning that they would bring them through core doctrines and they would they would help them understand what it is that the Christian life should look like exactly what they're committing to all of all of those things and i think it's kind of a disservice where a lot of baptismal services today you know you you throw out oh does anyone want to be baptized and then people just yeah. come you don't even ask them if they know the gospel and then they just get baptized and so with that qualification, I think people should try to be baptized as soon as possible because that is the that is the final uh, completion of that initial stage of following Christ. And so I think we need to do that as soon as possible, but with the qualification that you know there should be an attempt made, especially by church leaders, uh, to to teach and help uh, those who are being baptized or who want to get baptized, understand what does it look like to be a Christian, uh, making sure that that they are actually born again, that they that they don't think that they're becoming, uh, that they're getting saved uh, through the baptismal process, you know, taking care in those, in those areas, you know, get baptized as soon as you can. Yeah. That's probably answered my, my next question. I was going to ask you, what counsel would you have for pastors and elders who have people wanting to be baptized without being absolutely sure that that person has been born again? Yeah. You know, I think the only thing I would say with that too is, you know, as church leaders, we're not called to be the final judge, but we are, we are called to exercise discernment and, and wisdom. And so we want to be wise and we want to help shepherd the people. And it's not helpful to just let the flock do whatever they want. Uh, there have been, for example, there have been people who've come up asking to be baptized and, you know, you find out that this is their fourth or fifth time trying to be baptized, uh, or being baptized. And they think of it just as a spiritual experience. And maybe there, that's an opportunity to say, no, we're not going to baptize you, but what we are going to do is actually just tell you what baptism actually is. And so there's discipleship opportunities there. Yeah. Yeah. On that point, if someone listening or watching this interview has been baptized in a church that they have since realized isn't a sound biblical church, what would you say to them if they wanted to be baptized again? Well, it kind of depends. That's a great question. I'm sure a lot of people actually have uh, you know been in that situation. It basically it depends on a couple factors. So and and I you know, I think that in in these kinds of cases, it's really crucial to talk talk the specific situation over with with good godly men, uh, and, and and just say, hey, you know what 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 kind of what kind of advice would you give me in this scenario? I think that that's because each scenario is going to carry with it some complications that I'm sure I'm not seeing. Yeah, sure. But but in general, I would say that if the church is is a church that is heretical, like you know the Catholic Church, uh, if you were a part of like you know, the Mormon church, for example, um, you know, I, I think that we understand, okay, I was, I was not a Christian and that was not a Christian baptism. I think those are the things that you, that you're looking at is, is the church actually, uh, would, would anyone consider that a, a Christian church? And would you be considered a believer? If you, if you weren't actually a believer, no matter what you went through, you just, you know, took a bath essentially. And so I would I would look at those two factors as what kind of things are going on in the church. Now that doesn't mean that everything needs to be perfect with the church, and it also doesn't mean, you know, that this was actually a big debate in the early church. And I and I would say, um, one does not have to be convinced that the person that baptized them was a Christian either. And and that was a huge debate in the early church. And they said, listen, you know, you need to be baptized by a Christian. And if you were, and if it wasn't a Christian who baptized, you you need to get baptized again or whatever. But uh, I think we, we understand that even, you know, Paul's instruction about apostasy in the church and things like that, those, those things are uh, unforeseeable in, in some circumstances. 
And so, yeah. you know, it's just, it's the parable of the soils. Things, things look like, like it's good for some of the plants, but then when the trials of this world come, they, they fade away. And so I would just say that, uh, in, in general, if you are, are going through baptismal process as a believer in a church that largely, you know, we could identify, yeah, that was a solid church, despite having some problems in the leadership or despite having some errant teaching here or there, then I would recognize that as, as being valid. And I would also say that my personal conviction is that it would have to be done through immersion as well, which means that if you were baptized, uh, through sprinkling or anything like that, that you would have to actually be immersed to follow that mm. command. Yeah. Yeah. Really good stuff. In terms of order, what would you say to someone that was wanting to partake in communion, but hasn't yet been baptized? Yeah, this is a great question too. And you know, you should come up with some like bad questions. All these ones are, are hitting the good stuff right now. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, Baptism has traditionally been viewed as the gateway or the kind of the the protector of the table for communion for good reason because because baptism is viewed as the true sign of entrance into the church. Mm. So so somebody comes to Christ through faith and they are baptized to s- symbolize that allegiance and union with Christ and in doing so they have joined themselves not just to Christ, but to the rest of the believers. And, and they partake of the symbol of that new covenant community then uh, with the Lord's table. And so I would definitely say that it is right to want people to be baptized prior to partaking in communion. And, and that just is because of the logical and biblical necessity of that, because somebody in New Testament terms is not considered as a part of the church until they have exercised that step of obedience and jo- and symbolize that joining to Christ and to the body through baptism. Yeah, yeah. There are people that like to make a distinction between water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What, what are your thoughts on this, Peter? Yeah, that's something that I wrestled with uh, initially, and I was I was just really trying to see it. And and the way I typically tell people now is that I'm open to an idea that maybe there's some some sort of passage or text that deals explicitly and only with spirit baptism, but I don't see it, uh, and I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'm open to that discussion, and I theoretically, I guess I I don't have anything against it. But the main issue I have is that if you look at you know, church history, that the idea of spirit baptism was basically initiated by Zwingli as kind of a counter to the Anabaptist argumentation, because post-Reformation, you had the Anabaptists saying, well, listen, you know, scripture really teaches that that baptism is linked with faith. And so one of the ways that, that Zwingli and others would counteract that is they came up with this idea of spirit baptism, saying that, well, you know, first Peter three, even though it looks like volition and the exercise of faith is a part of baptism, even though it looks that way, that's because that's talking about spirit baptism, not real baptism or not water baptism. And so I would just say, listen, I'm, I'm open to that discussion, but so far all the passages that I've looked at could be explained with, with water baptism because water baptism is, is, uh, intrinsically linked with the reality of what it, what it signifies. And so I think the early church in reading those passages, if you were to try to say, now, is this referring to spirit baptism or water baptism? I think the early church would have looked at us and said, what are you talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Why did Jesus want to be baptized? And what was going on there, Peter? Oh, man, you asked. Yeah, you asked the question. Yeah, this uh, this is a tough one. Uh, I think, that, you know, I, I think there are probably different, like eight or nine different views on this. Uh, so I'll spare yeah. you all the different, uh, you know, complexities of that. I'll give you probably what I think are probably the two, two main options. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think a lot of people would take this as some sort of representative capacity. I mean, first of all, John's, John's baptism was explicitly labeled as a baptism of repentance. And so, you know, we would, as conservatives, we would say, of course, Jesus did not sin. 
So something else is going on. Jesus isn't repenting. And so uh, it's it's possible, and I'd say this is probably the more likely uh, of opinions, that Jesus in undergoing baptism is functioning as the Davidic representative of the people that he is serving, that he is coming to save. And that, that would fit very well with the Matthew's theme of painting Jesus as the, the new Davidic king is that both in Old Testament as well as New Testament, you you basically have you have the responsibility of the Davidic king to represent his people. It's called corporate solidarity. And so I think that what is possibly going on there is that Jesus understands that he's representing his people through baptism so that when we are baptized, we are joined to his baptism uh, that he himself has undergone. And so I think there, there's probably something to that, regardless of what other variations and views you take, uh, is that there's probably some sort of solidarity going on there uh, and representation aspect. But alternatively, uh, another really good, attractive view is that Jesus, when he went through his baptism, was around around 30 years old. And that was, according to Jewish law, the time that that the priests would go into service. And one of the ways that they would go into service or, or one of the ways they'd be initiated would be by going through washing and cleansing um, through, through a baptism of sorts. Uh, obviously, uh, it, it's not Christian baptism, but they would wash and bathe just like we see the symbol of baptism operating. And so some people have have suggested that maybe there's there's a link to the initiation of Jesus's ministry undergoing the baptismal process because of his you know th- he's starting his ministry and so this is this is the starting point and there's there's obviously a certain amount of truth to that that is basically his initiation of the of his ministry and whether or not that's to connect to the whole priestly aspect of his ministry or whether it's just to put himself on the scene being identified as the Isianic servant. Uh, there, there's probably multiple things going on, but I think those key concepts are are really what's going on there in Jesus's baptism. He's not repenting from sin, but he's identifying right. himself with his people and he's he's likely initiating his his ministry through that through that uh, process. Yeah, so good. Peter, how amazing is the Bible? We could just talk about so many interesting things for, for hours, couldn't we? It's just so, so Amen. good. I, I, I've got another one for you. Another another one, another tricky one. What was Uh-oh. happening in First Corinthians 15 when Paul speaks about those being baptized for the dead? Oh, you're not pulling punches, are you? Oh, man. Okay. So, uh, again, a lot of different takes on the baptism of the dead. And I guess I should just tell you, I have no idea, but I, I do I, lean, I do lean toward an interpretation, uh, but it is funny reading commentators or, uh, listening to people preach on this passage because people, you know, there are so many views on this and yeah, basically when, when you think about what's going on, I guess there are three main views you could take as an evangelical, uh, basically you could say, uh, and this is Tom Schreiner's view. He he took it this way: is that if you, Paul was using an argument that the that the Corinthians were doing this. So in other words, the Corinthians were baptizing people for the dead, but yeah. they but Paul wasn't sanctioning that. They were just doing that. And so Paul, in his overall theme of arguing for a resurrection, is basically telling them, "You're being inconsistent if you're baptizing people for the dead if you don't even believe in a resurrection." because baptism is related to the resurrection, that that would be his argument. And that's attractive in so much as it actually works really well with the grammar there of the passage. But the the issue is we don't actually see any evidence of that anywhere else. This would be a very unique thing. Um, there, there's no mention in, in early church history that any churches had been doing this whatsoever. And it's also kind of strange that Paul would would say that the Corinthians were doing something and use that as part of his argument, but then not speak against it. Uh, that that just seems weird to me. It's it's a possibility, but I, I just don't think that that's most common. Uh, so the other two views are, are that the church fathers uh, put out there. Many many church fathers held to this one is that believers were metaphorically referred to as dead. So this so in other words, um, you are dead in Christ, and so so you're baptized 
you know, as a dead person in, in one sense. And that's, mm. that that's possible, but I, I don't think that's most attractive. I'd say, so, so this is my take on it for what it's worth is that I think true baptism is view is in view, but maybe you have to translate one of the phrases a little differently. And so, uh, instead of translating for the dead, you translate the phrase because of the dead. So in other words, uh, the way you interpret that is that you're being baptized in affinity with the dead people as, as a collective group that have submitted to Christ. So in other words, right. Paul would be saying, listen, um, why are you being baptized because of the dead? In other words, you're being baptized as, as you know, you're associating with those who have already died in Christ and they're awaiting a resurrection. And you also are being baptized following their same steps, but that is a worthless, that's a worthless step if there's no resurrection. And so yeah. I, I think that's probably what's going on. But again, and there, there's uh, some flexibility for other views there. And it is kind of kind of tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Because Mormons actually do this today, don't they? They have these proxy baptisms, don't they, where they, they baptize for the dead, right? Exactly. And that's, I should have mentioned that. Thank you for bringing that up because people do take this kind of uh, literally saying, okay, so we can have a proxy baptism vicariously for somebody else. And, and as conservatives, you know, there are huge problems with any kind of, uh, any kind of, uh, faith for another or baptismal act for another, you know, nowhere in the new Testament do we see that, but this is where, you know, certain cults get their, get their teaching and Mormonism definitely falls into that camp. And so they do teach a proxy baptism through this passage, but as conservatives, we would have to reject that view and then take, uh, one of these other ones. Fantastic. Really helpful. Thank you very much. Peter, what is covenant theology? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Um, by summation, uh, covenant theology is basically a a system or framework of interpretation, and covenant theology tends to organize itself around three basic covenants. Although there's even debate among covenant theologians uh, about these covenants, but you have the covenant of redemption, which is the intertrinitarian covenant uh, promise to one another about redemption. And then you have the covenant of works, which God makes with mankind, how mankind is to work for eternal life. And then uh, mankind fails at that. And so the covenant of grace is instituted between God and man, where God uh, promises a way of salvation, how he's going to save mankind. And uh, now people might get after me. That's a very simplistic rendering of it, but I do think that's fair. And I, uh, even when I talk about it in my book, uh, I lay out, you know, the sources from covenant theologians talking about that. And somebody who's listening or watching might say, why, why would you even talk about covenant theology with regard to baptism? And the reason we talk about that is because covenant theology is actually the core for how uh, reformed pedo-baptists argue for infant baptism. And that may surprise a lot of people, but uh, one of the things I contend in the book is that Zwingli actually formulates covenant theology. He's kind of, everybody recognizes him, whether you're uh, a paedo-baptist or not. Zwingli is basically the figurehead of covenant theology. He's the one who systematizes it. He's he's you know very instrumental in that. And Calvin gets a lot of the press, but Calvin just popularizes a lot of what Zwingli does. And most mm -hmm. historians have have recognized that and affirmed that. But Zwingli is the one who systematizes covenant theology, and he does so largely to fight against the Anabaptists. So covenant theology at its core is largely a pro-Pedo-Baptist position. And, and you might say, well, how does that work? Well, because in covenant theology, the covenant of grace, which is so crucial to the understanding of covenant theology, the covenant of grace is the one covenant that rules them all. And the covenant of grace is meant to to solidify God's relationship with humanity and save them. And so there are different, according to covenant theologians, manifestations of that covenant of grace throughout history. It can be called the Noahic covenant. It can be called the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. Mm -hmm. But in their in their mind, those are all one manifestation, uh, or there are various manifestations of the one covenant of grace, which is unchanging in its essence. And so that's actually one of the crucial arguments for paedo-baptism then, because in the Abrahamic covenant, you have the covenant of grace where 
God promises to save Abraham and his offspring. And to signify that covenant, you have circumcision. And so circumcision is a sign of the covenant of grace. Okay. Now, when you get to the new covenant, you have baptism replacing circumcision in this framework. And so you can, you can see at least in the system that there's, you know, this supposed consistency where you have uh, baptism replacing circumcision as the sign of that covenant. And so it too then would be given to the children of believers, just like you saw in Abraham, because it's the same covenant of grace in the old Testament and in the new Testament. Now I should clarify too, uh, that, Reformed Baptists hold to a very different variation of covenant theology. And so I'm they they would be upset if I didn't make this disclaimer saying that they they would differentiate the covenant of grace as being identified only with the new covenant. And so that's how they're able to argue against infant baptism. But in my mind, just honestly, not being a covenant theologian, I think they do so uh, a little precariously. I don't think covenant theology is a great way to argue against infant baptism since it was designed to kind of propagate that view anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, what is dispensationalism, Peter? Yeah, a great question. So I would identify as a dispensationalist, but I don't say it too loudly because a lot of people have these uh, pre, you know, preconceived ideas of what, uh, what a dispensationalist is. Uh, basically, a uh, dispensationalist at at its core is somebody who holds to uh, a literal interpretation of Scripture, and in so doing, recognizes that there's going to be a future for Israel. So the church and Israel are not the same, and I think that that's that's a key component of of dispensationalism, and that there's going to be a literal a future one thousand year literal kingdom to come. And you know, you might say, wait, so that's all it takes to be a dispensationalist. In my mind, those are the core components. There may be other things as well. Mike Vlock has done tremendous work on that. One of my colleagues at Shepherd Seminary, he has a great book, uh, just a dispensational primer that you can you can check out and just get the get the uh, layman's version on like you know what dispensationalists believe. A lot of people just throw out confusing things, but at its core, you know, there's there's a there's just an intrinsic belief in the literal interpretation of Scripture, an understanding that God works with with uh, in different ways at different times. We understand that. And then that there is also a difference between Israel and the church and that God in a future millennial kingdom will enact many of his earthly promises. And so related to baptism, one of the reasons that a dispensationalist view would reject infant baptism is because we would recognize a difference between Israel and the church. So the entrance into the covenant community for Israel is not necessarily the same as the entrance into the covenant community of the church. So that's one area. And then also recognizing a difference between the covenants, between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, for example. And so those uh, theological systems also play into how, whether or not one would be okay with baptizing infants. Yeah, yeah. Peter, this has been so, so good. We're about to take a very quick break, and then we're going to be back to ask you the free signature bar questions. I hope you're ready, Peter. I'll do my best. So, Peter, as you know, every single guest that comes onto the bar gets asked these three very, very important questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, well, this has all gone very, very well so far, so you can only go backwards at this point, Peter. Question one, what kind of music do you listen to? I love classical music. I'm a big uh, Vivaldi fan, Mozart, but I also love Fernando Ortega. So I listen to him while I'm studying or reading all the time. Yeah, very good, very good. Next signature bar question, what book or books are you currently reading? So I have a couple that I'm reading. I'm Mike Vlock, I mentioned him earlier, my my colleague just came out, I mean, just came out like this week uh, with a book called The New, New Creation Model. And so I've been reading that. It's fantastic. I, I just can't wait for more people to read this book. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And then I'm also rereading uh, one of my heroes of the faith, Abner Chow. I'm reading one of his books, The Hermeneutics and Biblical Writers. I'm rereading that uh, to just refresh myself on on those things. Oh, very good. And whilst we're on the subject of reading, are you actually planning on writing any more books, Peter? You got anything in the pipeline? Well, you know, I I, I do have a list. Uh, Lord willing, I'm I'm planning on 
writing a book on self-discipline. That would be my, my goal. You know, I, I decided I would try to go back and forth between like really kind of small, um, intense subject like baptism, uh, and right. then like one for more, for more, just like everybody should be interested in this. So, so self-discipline from, from just how important that is to, to living as a Christian. And so that's something I've been really passionate about. Uh, and so Lord willing, I'll start working on that this summer. And then I would also eventually like to do one on post-millennialism since that's been, uh, an order of the day, but we'll see when that can, when that can, uh, get yeah. in the pipeline. Yeah. Very good. But we'll, we'll look forward to those. And the last signature bar question, what podcasts or sermons do you listen to, if any? You know, I listen to so much. I probably have, and I cycle through different ones. So a couple of ones that, I, that I've been following recently uh, would be the OnScript podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's, it's basically a, it's, it's a podcast that tries to keep up with different uh, scholarship coming out of the biblical world. And I, I definitely don't agree with everything that they say, but I like to be aware of the new scholarship things that people are yeah. saying. And so that's, that's a high level podcast. Not everyone will find it as interesting, but it's, uh, you know, I like to hear all the different things that are coming out in the biblical scholarship world. You know, I, I love listening to the dividing line with James White. He's had a huge influence on just the way that I think. Uh, so I, I like yeah. listening to him and then I, I love listening to, you know, the grace to you, uh, you know, app with MacArthur and, and there's also another one, uh, wisdom for the heart where, uh, our, our president and pastor in North Carolina here, uh, Stephen Davey has a small ministry wisdom for the heart. And it's, that's, that's really good too. Ah, very good. And it, I've got to let you plug your one as well, Peter, you, you run a podcast as well. Tell us about that. Well, I don't listen to my own podcast, so but I appreciate <laughs> the opportunity. So I, I do run a podcast. The Bible Sojourner, and I've been doing that for about five or six years. It's it's just been inc incredibly encouraging. I always, you know, love hearing from people that you know they listen to that. In fact, I've heard a couple people mention, you know, they'll reach out through my website, which uh, you can access just by my name, PeterGaiman.com, and uh, they've reached out saying that they've read the baptism book, that they that they've you know benefited from that. I even had a Pado Baptist say that they were convinced not to be Pado Baptist, and you know that's just so so cool that the Lord would you know stoop to use such a unworthy uh, as my uh, mentor uh, Mike Grisanti used to say a broken uh, clay cracked vessel. You know the yeah. God God uses uh, uses us when He doesn't have to, and that's that's an incredible privilege. So. I plan on keeping that podcast and blog up, uh, the Bible Sojourner, but uh, it's, yeah, it's just a privilege to be of use in any way, you know. Very good. Well, wherever you're listening or watching, we're going to make sure that there's a link to uh, Peter's podcast and a link to the book as well. And as you can hear, Peter has one of the best microphones I've ever I've ever interviewed somebody on and the best camera as well. So not only is the uh, output very good, the content is excellent as well. So definitely check it out. Before we let you go, Peter, take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in touch with you on social media. Yeah, you know, I... Well, I just want to say as closing thoughts, I have to say this, you know, David, it's been such a pleasure to uh, be on here with you. You're, you're a very gracious host and, you know, just um, amazing resource that you're putting out here for people. So I just want to really commend you Thank highly you. for that. Uh, and yeah, if, if people are more interested in, in the topics of baptism, I've written some blog articles. I've, I've done some podcasts on the issues. I also am trying to hit uh, other other issues that you know people might find interesting uh, on the blog and, and podcast uh, if they if they want to follow me on social media they can just search my name Peter Gaiman uh, I think my handle on Twitter is is Gaiman PJ I think uh I actually can't remember so that shows uh you know how important that is I suppose <laughs> but but yeah it's yeah. uh I, I've been, I've enjoyed uh, interacting with people on social media and the Lord the Lord does use social media even you know even though there's some some problems with it as well here or there right. but it's it is a blessing so uh trying to use that more often these days well we'll make sure that we find the link for your Twitter as well and that will be in the description as well Peter appreciate thanks it. again for your time it's been such a joy speaking with you really appreciate it uh, my pleasure. And I look forward to doing it again sometime.